With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Ready yes. for Bill? Yeah, I guess we'll get rolling. Let's do it. So, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, William Shatner on the Big Papa Online Network. Good evening and welcome to the kickoff of the sixth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Tonight, a man of contradictions, whose name's literal derivation is from the shadows, yet is one of the most recognizable, well-beloved cultural icons of our time. A Canadian actor, nearly all of whose performances were both lens and based in the States. A singer, quote-unquote, whose recordings consist of hilariously bombastic theatrical spoken word readings, mostly of popular hits of the day. A persona noted for his on-screen virility, despite spending the better part of saying busting out of every suit he's seen in right from the dawn of the 80s. Beloved and mocked in equal measure by cultish fanboys and mainstream audiences alike. Oft imitated but never paralleled. We can only be referring to one man, the legendary William Shatner. In honor of these many often glaring contradictions, we're going to completely avoid, or at least significantly gloss over, the role he's best known for in television and film, to talk his most interesting, and to hear him talk of it, desperate era, the lean years prior to and between said role, when he did some of his greatest and most absurdly entertaining work in cult television and cinema. So join us as we talk everything from Thriller, Incubus, and Shame, to Impulse, Kingdom of the Spiders, Devil's Reign, and The Horror at 37,000 Feet. When we speak to the Shatner that matters, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, Esperanto, Molestation, Spiders, Satan, and the Clan, the other career of William Shatner. Good evening. Like I said, I am Doc Savage. With me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Say hi, Lewis. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Uh, <laughs> this is actually, I do want to say that this season, most of these shows, actually all of these shows, uh, have been thought of by the brilliant brain of my co-host, who really stepped up in the, your your show suggestions for this season were just great. I was just like, wow, that's that's terrific. Let's just go with it. Because usually it's you know it's a combined thing. I, yeah. You think of something, I think of something, I think of something, you think of something, and the majority, if not all, again, were just your stuff. And uh, you know, it, it was just great ideas. You know, when you do something like this for we did it for a couple of years, and then we had a, a hiatus, and we've come back really strong, and uh, here we are again. And, you know, doing stuff like this, taking individual actors, actually is kind of a good idea, because I think it just gives us a bit of a change, a, a, bit, a bit of fresh air, 
because you know we did Hammer, we did Franco in 37 parts. I think it's out there in like <laughs> six hours. Yeah. Uh, just Franco, and uh, you know a lot of things we we covered in the past. You can actually go to our old link thing and we post it periodically. We just done so many shows, really 50 plus yeah. uh, over the time period. So this is a great idea, William Shatner. You know. He's 87 this year. Can you believe wow. it? God, God bless him. 87, uh, last March 22nd. It was his 87th birthday. And, yeah, he's an interesting fellow. I actually bought and read both of his uh, autobiographies. I uh, read the original one, which is funny because everybody was pissed off at him for that Star Trek memories. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. You, you know, and it's... I believe, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, it really makes you think. I don't think he was the blowhard that a lot of people think. I just think he was a guy that was in his sphere. And, you know, he's really interesting because, all right, you said he was Canadian, which is true. He's, he's Canadian. We all have to go to Canada soon, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, if we keep up with the Trump era, there's no yeah. other place to go. If they'll take us. If they'll take um, us, that's right. You're just pissed now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll have to say, we're not with Trump, please let us in. Canada's <laughs> going to build a wall. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Bill Bill was on stage. He did The World of Susie Wong. I mean, you know, he was, he was a stage actor. Yes. You know, it's actually early... very obvious from his emoting because yes. what he's doing is overperforming. He's, he's a theatrical actor that wound up working in television and film, and therefore mm. most of the times these people will really have to tone it down and dial back and say, okay, well, the camera's right in my face. I don't have to have these exaggerated performances and really speak to the, the back audience of the this huge theater, and he never did that, which makes him hilarious. Well, yeah. yes and no, because there are a couple of occasions, and I'm probably discussing them, where he actually did tone it down, and it actually worked for him. And some of the things are some of his better pictures. You know, like Oedipus the King, uh, he was in the chorus of that. So it didn't mean he sang, folks. And that, that, <laughs> when we say chorus, you know, like Shakespeare and what was that, Euripides or Aristophanes? Yeah. When they did film versions of these things, chorus meant the people in the background. Right. You know. But the brothers Karamazov with Yul Brynner, he was one of the main supporting actors in that. But Yul wasn't really a standout performance, but it's like 1958, I think we first took notice of him. But I think it wasn't until Judgment at Nuremberg, which is 61, where he became a bit of a presence. Would you think? Did You've seen that one, right? Yes. Yeah, I would say that too. Actually, I'm going to dial it back just a little bit, just to say that Shatner's 100% kosher. <laughs> so this is our kosher yeah. show. All of Shatner's four grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Austria-Hungary, the Ukraine, and Lithuania. He was born in Montreal, Quebec. So technically he should be a separatist, but he's not. And it was actually a rather conservative Jewish household as well. doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're not talking about Hasids, but I know some conservative Jews around here. And they're the ones that have the yarmulkes. And when, you know, so Friday night comes down the Sabbath, that's it. They're, they can't drive. They can't be out. They can only walk. No machinery, no lights, no television. So, you know, it's a real thing, and he grew up in that environment, which should really have impacted, uh, basically, the way he looks at life. I don't know that it comes across in his performances in any way, but nonetheless, it, it's a striking thing for somebody who wound up in the sort of spotlight that he did. You know, you don't even expect that. 
this is jumping ahead as well, but by the time that his <laughs> the role most well known for is uh, Captain Kirk had ended originally back in 69 when they took it off, off the air after that uh, impoverished third season, he kind of went into dire straits. He really didn't have a lot of money saved up, and he, nobody was really giving him work because he was sort of typecast, which is obvious because he's been doing that for a while, and very recognizable. I mean, you know, women loved him. Guys, you know, either aspired to be him or laughed at him. I think at the time they were more aspiring to be him. He, I don't know if it was because of uh, some marital issues he had, but he was, he lost his house. He was living in the back of a car. I mean, yeah, this is really kind of crappy stuff. Apparently, he was even uh, doing appearances at people's birthday parties. You know, this is how far Captain Kirk had fallen. So during this time is most of what we're going to be talking about during this show, uh, because this actually turned to be his most if not prolific, his most interesting period, whether he agrees or not, because he just sees it as desperate. But I guess he was stretching more. I guess he was taking roles he wouldn't normally have taken. So you get some really strange stuff in here. As the header for the show indicates, everybody knows that he's been friends with Leonard Nimoy forever. He also apparently was good friends with Heather Locklear from his later work with T.J. Hooker. And nowadays, people also kind of know him as a half-assed cowboy because he raises horses on a ranch. He's a he's a very good rider, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen him riding, but I do know this this thing about him being a more or less becoming a cowboy late in life. Now, hey, a, fuck, a fucking horse threw me when I was a kid, so I'm like, if you go ride, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> I've ridden a couple of times, you know, besides just pony rides and stuff, like at dude ranches or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. I got yelled at because I choked too much back on the reins. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, of course, the horses don't like. It's not really the great thing to do. But, you know, I'm inexperienced. But doing that professionally or just as the, your lifetime hobby, it's like, okay, that's pretty cool. I wouldn't mind doing that. Yeah, um, yeah. Riding horses is tough unless you like, uh, yeah, I don't want to go there. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going the Adam Ant route. Why, oh, why do girls like horses? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Nancy and Ann Wilson said the same thing. That's why they love riding horses. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so what's interesting about Shatner here is that his earliest performances often tend to be his best and the ones that you can almost take him as a serious actor in. His thriller episodes, his Outer Limits, his Twilight Zone, Shame, Incubus. Now, while there are some of these the blowhard, grandstanding theatrical moments, overall he's a lot more restrained than he'd become thereafter. And it's only after that period that he sort of went full-on camp. And he can still pull off a likably effective performance every now and again. But once he starts doing Star Trek, there's a palpable change in the man. And from there on, he's more or less doing a shtick. You know, he's the Shatner of the Get a Life skit and the Transformed Man and the Priceline ads. But to, to interrupt you, when they did the Star Trek feature films, which when 77 was the Robert Wise one, there were moments yeah. when they did two. So, yes, that's the that's one where, where Spock died, right? Wrath of Khan, which is beloved by everybody in worldwide, universally. I mean, he's got really good moments in that. Suddenly, it's like, wow, look at that. Yeah, yeah, he did try to tone it down for the movies, at least early on. Yeah, and I would say 2 and 6 are probably some of the best Shatner you're going to get in the Star Trek feature films, which, again, we're not covering in depth, but I just wanted to say that. A lot of people beloved 4, which is The Voyage Home. Is that the uh, one with the dolphins? Yeah, no, the wheels. Save the yeah, wheels. that's hilarious. Yeah, on Earth. Uh, that's it's, actually where I stopped. Yeah, it's kind of cute. I thought six, which is probably a really good one. It's a really good one. Uh, it's like the f- 
probably the first picture they gave the Forrest Kelly uh, a lot to do was rousing and it was quite well. Uh, they did a phenomenally. Paramount should be shot for what they did with Generations, but I don't want to discuss that. <laughs> I'll blow your mind actually because I am one of the few people that you will meet that will mm-hmm. champion the original movie. I saw that and Khan in the theater. Mm-hmm. I did love Khan at the time, having re-seen it uh, maybe six months ago, a year ago. Mm-hmm. I was like, eh, it doesn't live up to its reputation. It's certainly not as good as I remember it It doesn't. It, right, I agree with you, yes. About uh, that. Whereas the original, because they finally, finally, after all these years, on Blu-ray, I got the Blu-ray version, and they had like three different versions mm-hmm. on it or something, they finally restored the theatrical yeah. original version. And... Damn it, it works, and it works very well. If you go in there not expecting Wrath of Khan-style Star Trek movies, if you're right. expecting more like a 2001 or a Silent Running or something along yes. those lines, it's a yes. head film. It's a head yeah. film from Star Trek. I love that fucking movie. So most yeah. people would just like blow the first one off, say, oh, it starts with Khan. I'm like, no, the first one is awesome. Then it goes somewhere else with Khan and Ford. I, I agree with you, my friend, because I saw it at Ziegfeld. Me and, me and an old-time friend of mine, we, we went, I think, maybe opening weekend and that was the original cut before they drastically trimmed it down yes and yes the Ziegfeld Theater I just name checked was a place to see like I saw Tommy The Last Waltz Altered States like cool uh, experience movies we'll put that in quotations movies you had to see in a screen one of the first and only theaters at the time which actually had Dolby Sound mm-hmm. in New York City and it was big theater anyway yeah and they when Star Trek the motion picture first came out it was like Robert Wise's original cut and then I don't know it didn't test well it didn't review well whatever the case was they Mm -hmm. cut a lot out they did they chopped it up it made no sense Uh, they started putting in CG which was terrible and it becomes what people accuse it of being oh yeah just a bunch of people staring to space with their mouths hanging open whereas you watch the original version the original theatrical Mm. and it's like those models look good they're at least on the level of Moonraker which was the same year you know it's really a good film if you are expecting a 70s sci-fi head film basically uh, as opposed to expecting you know the kind of corn that you would get going forward and that you had had on a TV series you know two different animals you like one you like both you hate one you hate the other whatever but expect a good sci-fi film that's the only one in the series I'll point you to and most people don't agree with that at all, so that's why I thought it was I should make a point of that. So going back to this here, he actually starts off in television after his theatrical work, yes. uh, doing Howdy Doody. He was actually a regular character on the Ranger Bob. I was not a Howdy Doody fan. I've seen a couple episodes. I've mm. never seen Ranger Bob, but apparently he was on there. And it's notable because it was a huge thing for kids at the time. Uh, when people in those days did not have televisions, I know my father talked about, uh, he had a friend of his, he was the only guy on the block that owned a TV, and would invite everybody over to watch Howdy Doody, and he went over and was like, yeah, you know, I didn't really get it, some puppet show, it didn't mean nothing to me. But, you know, people were excited about this. This was the kids' show, and look, it's television in your own home. You didn't have to go to a movie theater to see, you know, whatever entertainment. So it's a big deal, really. I mean, okay, it's a kids' show, but it's not a bad start. And from then on, he almost wound up as television's first Archie Goodwin in uh, a Nero Wolf series. Problem is that CBS shot a pilot a couple episodes and never bothered to air the damn thing. So uh, it's floating around out there somewhere. I have not seen it. I would love to. 
I love Nero Wolf, and most of the Archies have been pretty cool. Uh, the guy from, who was it, Timothy Hutton, I think, did the, yeah, the recent Hutton. one. Yeah, all right, yeah. And we have the radio shows, and you have, like, what's his name, Paul Bartel, who did uh, the wine commercials for shows like Sherlock Holmes, is actually Archie in several episodes. He was great. You know, the books are entertaining enough. So I would be curious to see him in this role, but... To, oh, to to jump in there, yeah, well, that's the thing that people did when they did theater back in those days, or late 50s, early 60s. When they got it in road, they didn't go into movies right away, unless, you know, you got discovered, and we're going to put that in quotations, it happened. But a lot of people went into TV, yeah. and we're still talking about the early, well, early television was pre- primarily live, shot on kinescope and repeated. But even uh, even in the late 50s, American TV, some of it was live, and then some of it became pre-recorded. But a lot of theater guys went into early TV in the late 50s, a lot Mm -hmm. of theater guys. And so, yeah, that's what you're saying. You know, a lot of Shatner's early appearances are in stuff like you're describing. And oddly enough, it all becomes... I don't know why, except for the, you know, Defenders and Naked City, kind of genre-related, which I found really interesting in a way. And also, something that people probably don't realize, at least younger people, television, the reason that theatricals went right into that easier than they went into film, was not only because of the budgets and you had to be discovered and all this jazz, but the fact is, television, until maybe the 90s, maybe even more recently, was looked down upon. It was considered the lesser art from, oh, you're on television? Okay, you're not mm. a real actor. And, and they actually, in Hollywood, that was considered like, oh yeah, okay, well, you got some schlub job on TV, whatever. Even these people that were world famous and much beloved to this day, it was not as prestige, quote-unquote, as being in a film. So it was a little bit of an easier inroad to get your career rolling. And he certainly did a lot of quality work there. Like, he was on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He did two episodes. He actually did two episodes of three major sci-fi series at the time. Four of them, actually. Hitchcock Presents, where he did The Glass Eye and Mother May I Go Out to Swim. I don't remember oh, these episodes. Yeah. Uh, I saw Glass Eye really good. Yeah. And he did Thriller. He did The Grim Reaper and The Hungry Glass, both of which are probably the best episodes of that entire freaking series. We're talking about the Boris Karloff thriller, not the mm. UK one, the Brian Clemens one, which is re- really a better series. But nonetheless, if you're looking at the more traditionalist, okay, let's throw in some Robert Block stories, let's steal a Robert E. Howard story, whatever kind of deal, uh, Richard Matheson in his earliest days, that series, then yeah, these were definitely the two best, especially, I believe, The Hungry Glass. That one really stuck out in my head. I saw it on Sci-Fi Channel you know, God, back in the 90s, and I was like, Holy shit, this is good. <laughs> it was actually yeah. kind of scary, which is funny. Yeah. The Twilight Zone, he, of course, did two very famous episodes. The much-mocked uh, Nightmare of 20,000 Feet, where he's the paranoid air, air passenger who keeps seeing a gremlin out in the wing that nobody else can see. And Nick of Time, which was also amusing, which was about people putting a little too much stock in astrology and horoscopes with the little devil head in the, the diner. And he's like, he put money in there. Oh, let's see what's going to say. Uh, but, again, but, funny. But, 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 you, but you know, those are very good. Those are very good because even though they're very familiar now because the theme has been repeated, it's been redone, maybe oh, not yeah. blatantly, but we've seen it so much. And especially in the, uh, who did John Lethgo and the uh, Twilight Zone movie? Yes. The Nightmare uh, episode. I, I thought Shatton was really good in both of those. And actually, I would pick Nick of Time over the other one yeah, as a better too. episode because. 
Yeah, you're sitting in a diner. Oh, we're killing time. Put some money in that freaking thing. Oh, Johnny Rockets has that still. Do they? You really? put a coin in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't go there often, people, but, you know, once a year, I guess. Maybe once every two years. Maybe once every three years. So <laughs> you put a coin in the jukebox that's at your table, and it's going to play some shitty music over a trebly distorted speaker. But in this episode, you know, he's getting a fortune thingy going on when he's putting the coin in. And it's really good. It's eerie, and it's I, I liked it. It's yeah. And his reactions are true to life, I thought. Really good, really good. I was uh, actually going to say that beforehand, <laughs> but you're correct. Definitely that is my choice of the better of the two episodes, even though the other one is probably more known. More uh, known, yes. And the last series he did that was of note, the same idea, was The Outer Limits. I think he only did one episode here, but it's the standout episode of the series. Well, okay, one of the two standouts, uh, after To Serve Ma'am, which was great. It's a cookbook! was Cold Hands, Warm Heart, where he's uh, the astronaut in outer space who may be hallucinating, may not be hallucinating that alien girl that supposedly loves him. And, of course, he's going to go out there and die in space. Very, again, these all are among the pinnacles, if not the pinnacles, of their series. So he's not doing a shabby job. This guy is, you know, however overblown some of these parts may be, of course he's got to play scared, and, you know, it always goes a little bit over the top. Nonetheless, he's doing a creditable job, and again, you know, 40, 50, 60 years later, these still stand out like, oh, what, what are the best episodes of this series? Bang, 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 somewhere in the top five, the Shatner episodes are going to pop up. And both of them, which says a lot. So is there anything you want to say about them before we go on to uh, Shane or any of the other stuff you were mentioning about his uh, early career? Uh, as far as TV work, uh, <laughs> early TV work, I think we got it covered, yeah. All right. So next up, he winds up in a Roger Corman film, an early Roger Corman film. And I know we discussed on the Barbara Steele show that Corman's work, especially once he directed himself in the earliest ones, mm. eh, not always the greatest. You know, he's you can tell he cuts corners, let's put it that way. And he's also very dry and conservative, uh, which comes across on screen. Yeah. However, this film is probably, I hate to say, maybe the best thing the guy ever did. I'm not talking about Shatner, I'm talking about uh, Corman. But nonetheless, it is a very good Shatner performance. The Intruder, mm. which those of us who were around in the days of Night Flight, or even USA uh, Network would show it at nighttime sometimes, you know, like after hours, like 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock on uh, Friday nights or something. Shame was the other name for it. If you ever wanted to see Shatner's overacting and sleazy bedroom shtick with the ladies put to its most effective use... This is the film to go for. I mean, he's way the hell over the top, but given the subject matter and the setting, it really works, and it makes for an intense watch. I imagine if you had really wanted to make some kind of obnoxious, NS-style blackmail tape of clips of Shatner throwing out racial slurs, this film would be gold, because he plays a scummy clan-style agitator, kind of like Bannon and Trump, uh, but much younger, more <laughs> sober, and better-looking, who moves through small towns across America. The best part, he refers to himself as a, quote, social worker, and makes what they call race warriors out of all the locals, resulting in the usual lynchings, cross-burnings, and domestic terror initiatives against any blacks, immigrants, or whatever in the area. He then spends his nights getting the wives in the sack, then laughing at them when he gives them the brush off or uses it to his advantage thereafter. It's a very dark and serious film for what's basically a exploitation number about a town full of good old boys during integration and the dawn of the civil rights movement. And it's certainly a perpetual and relevant one, never more so than in Trump's America. Even Shatner's sleazy to maniacal over-the-top performance manages to give you the creeps given the setting that it's a centerpiece of. If there's one major problem with this film, it's that it's too short to properly carry out its themes to their logical conclusion. 
and more specifically that its ending is completely unrealistic, even Pollyanna-ish. Suddenly, all these murderous hicks find a conscience when they realize that they've been duped into, what, acting out on their pre-existing racism and hatred of the other? They all turn on Shatner's agitator and walk away ashamed of themselves? Really? Even a cursory acquaintance with the human race and basic psychology would be debunking this one as wishful thinking of Hollywood bunkum. You know, I'd like to believe it, but I'm sorry, people are not basically good, and leopards just don't change their spots. But, that aside, it is a really good, intense watch, and, you know, enough of Shatner's Captain Kirk persona of the future comes out in this that you can sort of laugh at him, and at the same time be like, kind of, ew, this doesn't make me feel good, because of the rest of the film. So what's your take on this one? Uh, it's, it's a very interesting movie, because I think I think he's really good in this. Mm-hmm. He's raw, he's still raw. It's a, it's a feature film. It's not a television episode. It's a feature film, and he's he's raw, and he yes he has a lot of the uh, how do we say ticks and mannerisms that will appear later on will become more accustomed to, but at the same time it's it's raw. It's a ferocious performance, mm-hmm. and as you already touched upon with, with what you just said. Yes, it's very pressing. It's now. It's a happening now thing. It wasn't too long ago with a bunch of fucking yokel banana heads were carrying torches. One guy drove a car into a crowd of peaceful people. I mean, it's America then. It's America now, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm actually surprised that no one, because people don't do their research. Hello. (laughs) Nobody's brought this movie up. Nobody's brought this film up in the sense that you think things are bad now, things are bad then. Yeah. You want to make America great now? America wasn't great then. That's true. Which is what I keep saying all the time. My good black friends. I don't want to say African American because that's a weird... They're they're brown or whatever color. My (laughs) good friends who happen to be black. How about that? Um, We have these conversations on and off and it's like America was never great. We just only recently came out of the gutter of of racial inequality, and this guy is dialing back the the thing. This happened then. This is happening now. So again, I'm surprised that nobody uh, journalist talking about journalism has brought this film up as a signpost for this is not new. Yeah, uh, he's he's very good in it. Yeah, you know, it's just not an excellent movie. It's very tricky. It's an uncomfortable film to watch for sure. Yep, definitely. So. Next up, he stars in another film. This is four years later. So, of course, he's done more television inside. And I don't think... He might have just started Star Trek. Maybe it was just after this. Uh, but he did a film but for a fellow named Leslie Stevens called Incubus. Now, this one is really strange. What seems to be an eerie foreign film, it feels very Swedish, if not Bergman-esque, but it's mm. actually filmed in California. Esperanto and Burned In, what turns to be French subtitles, which are now covered and altered into English, uh, to the extent print help this feel, as does the chilly black and white, mainly outdoor filming, with only some beachside sequences, an old-fashioned European village-style cabin and chapel setting, and the weird music and quote-unquote curse that seem to follow the film doesn't hurt that either. 
Shatner's acting here is probably his best, as it's his most subdued and naturalistic. He's not hesitating on random words with long pregnant pauses, only to spit out or constipatedly strain at subsequent ones. You know, the usual shtick you hear when people imitate him. About the worst you could say is that no one seems to know Esperanto as the geeks of that imaginary language, which is invented by scientific and intellectual types, but effectively just places O's and vowels on the end of every word, almost pig Latin style. I seem to find the film's mispronunciations hilarious. Snort, yeah, comic geek, go get a girlfriend, loser. So, about the curse... It was filmed entirely in the constructed language of Esperanto. I know that uh, Isaac Asimov was one of the guys involved with this. And it was one of only two films to ever be filmed in that fake language. Uh, none of these people were Esperanto speakers. They learned their lines phonetically. Uh, there was no Esperanto expert on set. Uh, so when they did show at a film festival of these kind of folks, they all like laughed heartily and made fun of it. But anybody that didn't know or care about that nonsense says, okay, you know, it was a pretty good film. But here's where all the weird stuff started happening. There was a small cast in this film. One of them, Anne Atmore, she basically killed herself right after the film ended. A couple months later, the guy who played the devil in the film, basically, Milos Milos, he killed his girlfriend, who was, by the way, the wife of Mickey Rooney at the time. They were just kind of separated. And then killed himself in Rooney's bed. And then the daughter of one of these other girls, uh, the two girls that were in the film, mm. uh, was kidnapped and murdered. They never found the killer, but they believe that it may have been the work of the Manson family. Who knows? Shatner's third wife, probably unrelated, drowned in a pool around that time, uh, which impacted him for decades. And also kind of put him against drinking because she was a drunk, was the bottom line. The director, Leslie Stevens, and the girl who played Kia in the film House Names got divorced. Again, probably unrelated, but still. Stevens' production company went bankrupt. The music editor was in prison for, of all things, scalping Super Bowl tickets. And apparently, unlike what you would think, oh, they got to destroy all the prints because there's a curse on it. No, they just went up in a fire. I guess there was a fire at the lab or something. So the film really didn't make a lot of headway other than among certain critical circles and at a film festival or two because it was in a strange language and it was kind of an oddity. The reason we have a print is because it was uh, it did okay in France. You know, they kind of like artsy stuff, as known to everybody in the world. And therefore, the one print that survived, or that we know of, was actually had these French subtitles, like I mentioned earlier. Oh, apparently, in this other book that Shatner wrote, which I had not read, he claimed that he was threatened by a group of Esperanto speakers who put a curse on the film. And Shatner then said, oh, I was so worried about this, I started destroying every copy I could find. Bullshit. But, you know, nonetheless, it makes for this whole entertaining thing about, oh, look at the curse around the film. And it is strange that so many people fell into tragedy and death not long after doing it. Is it related to the film? Probably not. But nonetheless, interesting to relate. So, how about you? What's your take on this one? I I, I wanted to see this for so many years. And then uh, when I finally did, I thought it was a very uncomfortable watch. Aside from its gimmicky thing going on, you know, it's an invented language. And, you know, this, I have to say, people must have worked hard to learn these lines, you know, oh, that yeah. for sure. It's uncomfortable. It's It's got an... I don't know what they were striving for here, because it certainly got... If you were to misinterpret the film, it certainly got a very occultish ambiance going on about it. Yes. Almost like someone was thinking, so... If we were to do, and again, don't go with me on this. If somebody were to say, let's do a movie in Crowley speak and let's make it eerie and let's see what happens. Yeah. 
I, I think that was part of the stigmata that carried this film for a long time because yeah. I think a lot of people thought that's what was going on. And you've got to admit, all the prints are burned in a mysterious fire except one. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty bizarre. But luckily they have one. It's an unusual film. It's a strange movie. We actually do have a copy of it. You know, thank goodness, you know, of historical reasons. It's still very strange. And yeah. um, I can't already touch upon you. You did really, really well by listing uh, all the unusual things that befell those, uh, had befallen all those people who worked on it. Much like much like The Exorcist, the yes. movie. Yeah, there were a, a lot of things going on with those. And those also... Parts. Things that the Stones were involved with in the late 60s, you know, all those things that were going on with Jagger and Pallenberg and uh, Brian Jones and that whole Master and Margarita thing, Christanic Bedford's request, Altamont. Yeah, I mean, there is a vibe here that even though anybody that knows stuff knows there's no occult anything here except for maybe some of those ceremonial magic sigils that show up in the, the opening credits. There's really nothing to it. Nobody really knows anything. Nobody's doing anything. Well, yet well, it's got far- the vibe. Hold on a second. He's got the vibe of like a Kenneth Anger thing. In other words, trying to put a spell on celluloid. It feels like that. Is it really? No. Right. But it definitely has that vibe. So. Right. Well, no, you you mentioned something because I wanted to say that invo- invocation of my demon brother. Yes. Which Jagger actually did work on for Kenneth Anger. And didn't Chris do the soundtrack? His brother? He might have. I. I know Bobby Beausoleil was involved. And Bobby that, Beausoleil, Manson, there's your Manson connection. Yeah, yeah a lot, you know, we're talking about a time period when all this stuff was very real, very scary. You know, yep. it's, and, in a way, we didn't want it to be. So let's move on to the next title. <laughs> Good sec. All right, so next he's involved with Star Trek, obviously, for three years. And right towards the end of that, he gets involved in, of all things, a paella western. White Comanche. And... You know, like most of these things, the directors, you never heard of them. Unlike some of the Italian ones where these guys were genre people and they were just hopping genre to genre and you know who they were. Oh, look, here's uh, Sergio Corbucci or something. Now, here it's like a Jose Briz Mendez. Who? But nonetheless, they do have name U.S. and European actors that would show up in various films, cult and otherwise, like Joseph Cotton, Shatner himself, Rosanna Yanni, Perla Cristal. You recognize some of them from Spanish cinema. You know, things like Nashi films or, uh, you know, A Bell from Hell, that kind of thing. But it's actually not a great one except for the whole shtick and the fact that Shatner's in it. What I wrote is it's a boring paella western revolving around a dual role for Shatner as two half-Indian, as in Native American, quote-unquote, brothers who go find themselves on opposite sides during the Western expansion. One Shatner goes full-on Hiawatha, tripping on mushrooms and leading scalping raids on settlers, while the other one pulls a two-gun kid, and after a whole lot of bad split-screen projection, it's really as bad, where they chat together, he winds up gunning him down. In 1968, he also released, just as a jumping ahead here, what, what for decades was his only album, the largely spoken word, if effectively, quote, sung to musical accompaniment, The Transformed Man. I love uh, that. That album is fucking awesome. I've had that since I found out about it in, oh God, it must have been the early 90s. Around the time Golden Throats came out, which was actually how I found it. He has some hilarious stuff on there. Mr. Tambourine Man and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, both Beatles songs. 
Mr. Tambourine Man, we used to scare folks. Me and my That's a bird mother. song. It's a bird song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'd go by the local mall and kind of drive by really slow and keep it quiet until the final sections of that uh, song where he cuts the music and, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, and he screams, Mr. Tambourine Man! And it goes off like a minute and a half with the studio echo. It used to make people jump out of their shoes. It was, yeah, typical dopey teenage prank, but it was hilarious. So, yes, uh, if you were one of the people that jumped out of your shoes when you heard Shatner screaming that at you, it was probably us. <laughs> <laughs> so, go ahead. No, I love I love that album. I love, I love that album. It's funny. <sighs> Since we're doing a Shatner on Celluloid show, it's funny because, actually, I think that's actually not a bad album i think it's very experimental in a way oh yeah and it, it may not be the joke we all thought it might have been i think there might have been some brains behind this thing going on just nobody caught on well he was just acting possible. out the roles and right. trying to throw yeah. something into it. he did shakespeare on there he does avant-garde poetry yeah. i mean it's a strange album right it's a strange album and he only able I will say this, he all, he's done a number of records, uh, CDs, whatever, vinyl throughout the years, on and off, until he had a, a revival in recent, the last two decades, as far as that goes, and with the one with Ben Folds called Has Been, which is really terrific, that's a true successor to, to Transform Man, and I, the, the guy, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he's a joke. I think Billy Sherwood, the bass player for Yes, right now, and he worked with Chris Galliar for years. He's been working with Shatner around some of this stuff, some of this prog stuff. And it's very interesting. He's like, what's going on in these guys' minds? Because it's like, not a joke. Because I don't think he would submit himself to, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, yo, just full-on jokester. You know, I don't think he, he would want to hear that. And I think anybody working with him doesn't want to do that to him. I just think everybody's working on a different sphere with this stuff. But I will say, Transform Man, definitely experimental and not the joke party record people think it is. As far as White Comanche, it's watchable. It's weird. Is it weird? Enjoyable? No, it's watchable. But it's early spaghetti western. And it's actually, no, sorry. It's late period spaghetti western. But he looks good in that. You know, he's yeah. kind of, He's got his shirt off a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah certainly as the Indian brother, whatever his name was. Uh, is no top. About, yeah, the thing about Bill Shatner, the guy had no hair in his upper torso. <laughs> you know, some, some, for some of you who might like that, he's very buffy looking, very careless torso thing going on, you know. So people of certain persuasion might like that. I was going to say, it's like a gay icon thing, like uh, the the Pepla films, you know, those shaven chest yeah. bodybuilders. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so, you know, we just wanted to add that for some of our listeners who might dig that. You That's know. right. <laughs> so, um, next he actually showed up on two episodes, not just one, of Mission Impossible, which we'll hopefully be talking later this season. Uh, Encore and Cocaine. You know, I've been watching this set, the entire series, all seven seasons, plus... Uh, you know, the two that they did in the 80s mm. over the period of like a year and a half. So my memory of the exact episodes is a little bit limited, but I do remember the cocaine one because he was really kind of hamming it up. Fun stuff, but that's all I can say about that one. Anything you want to say about that before we go to the next one? Yeah, uh, yeah, he's interesting. He's he's one of many familiar faces, character actors, TV people, theater people, 
low-budget movie people who turned up in this, sh- this series. Uh, we, we will be talking about later this season, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah and it's very interesting. Some people, uh, unfortunately not Shatner, because neither you or, nor I can really recall with uh, any dramatic weight as, as uh, reviewers or commentators uh, that particular role. But others did do appearances in that show where it was like you could still remember a bit more about their episodes and what they did and who they mm-hmm. were. But, yeah, I do recall Shatner was in those. I did see them uh, as like yourself, but there's very little I can say about that. Yeah. So next up, in 1973, he does The Horror at 37,000 Feet, which is a TV movie. Mm. Uh, the 70s were very big on TV movies, and at the time, that was not a bad thing. That was actually, you look forward to seeing some pretty good stuff there. There's a lot of witchcrafty, satanic peril, horror type stuff going on, probably in the wake of things like The Night Stalker. Richard Matheson and Dan Curtis were all over. We talked about that uh, during our Dan Curtis in the 70s show. A lot of stuff going on. Crowhaven Farm, The Devil's mm. Daughter, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I mean, it was a really good era for this stuff. So here comes this one, and, well... This is one of those TV movies from an era that made a real art form out of them, with, uh, as I said, many of Richard Matheson's scripted show, like Moon of the Wolf, Crowhaven Farm, Devil's Daughter, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, enlivening many an afternoon or 11.30 p.m. slot on the big three networks of the day. Someone gets the ingenious idea to transport an old British Abbey to the States and to put commercial passengers on the same flight. Of course, the damn thing is haunted or cursed or some such bullshit. And, oh, and there's druids involved. And they just happen to have an all-star cast of washed-up actors like cowboy actor Chuck Connors, Buddy Epson from Green Acres, Russell Johnson, the professor from Gilligan's Island, Paul Winfield, Roy Thinnes, and Shatner as a drunken priest who's lost his faith. Yeah. It turns into a real airport sort of disaster film in miniature, complete with a doofy Mia Farrow cropped Helen Reddy wannabe strumming an acoustic guitar, a bratty kid, some light class warfare, and a middle-aged couple in crisis. You've seen it all before and will many times again before they bid the 70s goodbye. But never before or again will you take a haunted flight on Beltane, complete with voices whispering in Latin, possession, wild temperature fluctuations freezing both pets and crew to death, druid curses, and airplanes stuck still in mid-flight, and a batch of really homely, frigid women with only France Noyan to tease the eye somewhat. Everyone's really over the top, especially the girl playing the witch, the homely nun, or wherever she's supposed to be with Shatner, and Shatner himself, which makes her some pretty damn hilarious viewing. Shatner's big save the day finale must be seen to be believed. Wouldn't you rather be like the only testosterone-fueled guy on a satanic plane filled with lonely, frigid women? <laughs> I mean, you could save everybody. There you go. That's true. That's true, especially in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but I just had to shout that out. Um, I remember watching this, amongst every other thing. And, yeah, it's weird. Uh, Yeah, I think if you didn't have, as you already mentioned, these weird... There was a lot of Satan fucking TV shit going on back in the early 70s. I, mean, I, I was beginning to wonder, like, what's going on at ABC? Uh, <laughs> who's in charge there? Are they having, like, capitalistic rituals every week? I was going to say, you know, so mode it be. What the hell is going on with that network? There was <laughs> right, a lot seven, of stuff. There was a lot of stuff. Some of it was effective and eerie, for mm-hmm. sure. This is not one of them. But this is also, <laughs> but this is also a... This show was also a uh, collision with the airport... 
very popular airport. One, two, three. Yep. Uh, Which were hilariously reviewed on Third Eyes, if those are interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there, there was stuff going on there. So uh, as far as Bill goes, he, yeah, you want to see him as a drunken priest, yeah. Um, yeah, lost his faith and moping. And, you know what's yeah. interesting is that for years, this thing was kind of missing in action. They yes. had a DVD in Europe that went out of print many, many years ago. And I was like, geez, I really want to see this. You know, kind of complete the Shatner collection. I sort of vaguely remembered it from childhood, but, you know, I hadn't seen it since. And then all of a sudden it just turned up on some budget disc. I mean, it's it's legit. It's from, like, I don't know, who the hell, Warner or uh, ABC Video or something stupid like that. Uh, so you can get it out there for really cheap on Amazon or whatever. And it's definitely worth a watch because it's just so over the top. I mean, even watching airport films and watching these satanic peril films and whatever else, that's the kind of stuff from that era, you know, you weren't going to see one that's this ridiculous. It's, it's just hilarious. Mm. So uh, enjoy. So go ahead. Anything you want to say about this one? No, uh, we can go. Yeah. So <laughs> next up, speaking of ridiculous, he goes to my buddy William Griffey. Wild Bill Griffey, who I also interviewed on Third, I had a great career-length interview with him like a couple years guy. back. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's actually one of the guys that's still in contact with me constantly, sending me stuff about his appearances or whatever. And oh. He sent me some extras. He's a good guy. So Impulse was the film he did for him. This one, I actually kind of pulled this from my review at the time. Hailing from what is hands down the most entertaining ideal in the career of the once and future James Tiberius Kirk, Impulse marked the kickoff point for Canada's favorite son's true entree in the cult history, a period wherein he'd appear in quirky walk-on roles in such fair as the Six Million Dollar Man, Kung Fu, and Police Woman, while jumping headfirst into drive-in horror oddities such as King of the Spiders, Horror at 37,000 Feet, The Devil's Reign, The Kidnapping of the President, and Visiting Hours. While he previously made inroads into the independent cult film arena with two amazing early 60s efforts, namely the Roger Corn-produced Shame, a.k.a. I Hate Your Guts, or The Intruder, and the all-Esperanto occult out of The Incubus, and returned to a more mainstream eye with the resurgent Star Trek film series and 80s television cheese fest T.J. Hooker, this is without a doubt the era the male will be remembered for by those not sporting a Federation badge or Starfleet insignia on their lapel, and similarly my long-standing personal favorite time in the man's long-running career. In addition to Shatner and Al Adams and regular Jennifer Bishop of Horror of the Blood Monsters, Blood of Dracula's Castle and the Female Bunch, as well as Griffey's own Mako Joes of Death, Griffey pulls in a cast of exploitation-worthy notables, inclusive of Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Harry Kerwin regular Bill Kerwin, Harold Ajab Sakata, who's even billed as such in the credits here, and fading Hollywood starlet Ruth Roman, who'd gone from Strangers on the Train to such fair as The Baby and Day of the Animals over the 20 years intervening, which says a lot. Their collective presence alone would have made the film script be damned, but in Griffey's ever-capable hands, it's pure cheese-tastic driving entertainment awaiting. So uh, Shatner is Matthew Stone, a slick 1970s-style gigolo who makes his way through life living off rich widows and sporting one painfully hilarious, but at the time considered quite slick and stylish, ensemble after another. Unfortunately, Stone is also a serial killer, scarred by a childhood trauma wherein he was forced to kill an amorously drunken suitor, who was Kerwin, with, of all things, a samurai sword in a fairly over-the-top Oedipal scene. Yes, we seem to be believed. That's just the opening credits, people. Ignoring all semblance of modern law, Stone allows himself to be coerced into giving a ride to a particularly obnoxious child, Kim Nicholas, whose entire career appears to consist of this film and playing a hostage in the boring 70s political terrorist rule of Black Sunday, who then proceeds to berate him for smoking and distract him into hitting a stray dog, which she subsequently badgers him about vociferously, like it wasn't her fault. Rather coincidentally, 
the next rich widow he manages to hook up with is this absurd little brat's mother, who's Jennifer Bishop, and then the fun really begins. Apparently, Stone and the hilariously named Karate Pete, Harold Sakata, are somehow business partners, though the exact nature of their relationship is never spelled out. My best guess is they did some time in stir together. Sakata needs money, he's getting old and too worn out to compete anymore, and he expects Stone to be his meal ticket. Sakata exits his huge Winnebago, prominently displaying a drop cloth with his numb de gear hanging off its side, to wait in front of the car wash entrance for no apparent reason, allowing Stone to drop a noose over his head, cartoon style, and box the man while he hangs there. It must be seen to be believed once again. Sakata cuts himself loose and runs through the still operating car wash. I guess they leave him running 24 7 down there in Florida, until old Matt runs him down and stuffs his corpse in the trunk. Stone is still putting the moves on Mom going on pleasant Sunday drives with her and the kid like any other suburban family, before the kid finally starts hinting rather broadly at having seen the murder. In true Hitchcockian style, no one will believe her, probably because she's so fucking obnoxious. Stone drives along stalking the kid on her way to school and trying to coerce her into a car like those perverts who put kids in the back of milk cartons. But hey, it's just another day in the life of this Ersatz family, so no harm, no foul. Filled with loud fashions, ridiculous lines, and intense overacting, this is something of a holy grail among party films. Uh, I remember I interviewed William Griffith. <sighs> And he told me a really good story, which I didn't know beforehand about this film. He said he only had Shatner for a few days because Bill's price and Bill's availability, Bill being William Shatner, of course. Yeah. And he had this this uh, this story already written, and they didn't know if they could afford him, so they managed to say, okay, we can hire you for X amount of days. And they were trying to shoot around his availability. And the best story he had is the scene you mentioned where he he hangs Harold Sakata. Apparently the rope was too tight. And he kicks away the box. And then Harold's sta- actually standing there hanging. Yes. And he's starting to die. And Bill is supporting him. And, nobody, and they're shooting the picture. Nobody's getting an idea that this is actually real life happening. And uh, Bill broke a finger or two trying to support Harold's weight, which was significant. And trying to, when he realized, because he's right below him, that, oh, shit, something's going wrong. This is actually William Shatner trying to save a man's life. And then yes. it became like a thing. So uh, that actually happened on this movie. Yep. It's a weird little movie. Um, Ruth Roman suddenly, as you mentioned, appeared around this time frame after having been like, Invisible for decades, and uh, from what I gather, she uh, was had a very free sexual lifestyle that kind of banned her in movies for a long time. So I don't know what. Oh shit! Can we pause this for a second? Yeah, good. Yeah, okay. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm back. Hello. Yeah, sorry about that. Where were we? So uh, you were talking about Ruth Roman's sex life. That's what I understand. I, I saw that a few times over the years, especially in uh, unpublished documents when I was working at the Library of the Performing Arts. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of people had, I guess a lot of actors had written... I wouldn't say autobiographies or diaries, but, you know, things they were going to publish and they never did. And they would, uh, at Lincoln Center, they would devote these collections. And one of my things there was I had a catalog stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And and I had come across things like uh, I remember Lou Ayers. Remember the old character actor? Yeah, sure. He had written some stuff, and I was like, oh wow, look at this. And then somebody else I had come across and said, this is really interesting. You know, uh, people would donate their papers, and then you would find all this salacious stuff. <laughs> uh, who was another person? Amanda Blake. That's actually more well known nowadays from uh, Gunsmoke, of all things. She played uh, with James Arnett's uh, very popular Western back in the day, Western TV show. She played Miss Kitty, the lady who owned the saloon. And apparently, she was banging everybody in Hollywood, including everybody on that set. And everybody <laughs> knew about it. And she was one of the first AIDS casualties. Oof. Yeah, so, I mean, this stuff went on, you know, but... Uh, it's funny I when you mentioned... Ruth was, look- Ruth was looking for what? I forgot. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, when you mentioned uh, Louis Ayers, and it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, he was around because that's what the porn starlet named herself after, Louis Ayers, the one yeah. that Jerry Butler said uh, had a stinky pussy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, things happen, you know, so... Uh, yeah, so I think we discussed this film as much as we could... <laughs> with some diversions. Uh, so, anyway, uh, next up, he shows up on Six Million Dollar Man in an yeah. unforgettable episode called Burning Bright. More hilarious overacting. Shatner must have been dropping some serious drugs during this period. This time, he's an ex-astronaut who flips out with a sort of schizophrenic PTSD from being in space. There's a hilarious ending where he climbs an electrical tower and fries to death. We're supposed to feel sad, but all tears shed will spring from a very different source, namely your laughter. Any take on that one? I don't remember that, but I do remember catching him in a com- couple of things you had skimmed over. Uh, he was in a Barnaby Jones, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Go Ask Alice, one of the early ABC drug movies. There was the you know the whole drug movie phase going on yes. with television because drugs are bad for you. <laughs> he was he was in that. I remember that quite quite. Vividly, there's also an episode of Kung Fu where it's like <laughs> Captain Brandywine Gage. He probably laughed when he saw that cast list. <laughs> and uh, a couple other things. But yeah, I remember the $6 million man vaguely. I probably not enough to <laughs> to uh, comment on it. As far as $6 million man goes, I was catching up on uh, season two of the really, really good Evil Dead reboot on stars and i'm like who the hell's playing ash's old man and i see the credits it's lee majors oh my god (laughs) wow and if you haven't seen it you have to see it (laughs) yeah because i remember he showed up at uh the festival that you work for several Mm. years back i think it was one of the last times we went and he looked like hell (laughs) That's why I said that, because I'm watching season two, uh, before I lost stars, I was watching season two of The Evil Dead. I really, really liked that, and the fucking stars canceled it, so they could have more melodramas. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, they did season three, which I haven't captured yet, because there'll probably be on Netflix to catch up. But So I'm watching like this old guy who looks like, I don't know, but he's playing a guy who's like banging young girls and like... The woman that Ash had a relationship with, this guy has a current relationship with, it's very weird. And, and he hates him, he has a daddy complex. I'm like, who's this guy? And then I saw the credits, I'm like, oh my god, it's Lee Majors. <laughs> wow. And, and, and yeah, and at the last episode, Ash runs over him with a car with his wheels and squashes his head, just like you can see on some of those forbidden 
episodes of stuff you never want to see again. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when Facebook first started up, and all you would see people were posting this like real life, like this is what happened to this guy who jumped out the window. You're like you don't want to see that. Jeez. And and so that's how Ash kills his dad. He runs over his head. Oh, God. <laughs> but yes, complete soundtrack. But he shows up again. So, but don't ask. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was sweet matrix. So yeah, I really digress, but that's what the show is for because it's fun. Of course. So uh, next up, unless yes. you got something else to say on that one, <laughs> got so far afield here. He showed up in another Corman production, which is, and you can always tell because that fucking Dick Miller's and everything. God, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Miller. Yes. Um. <laughs> you sure I gotta cut that out? Uh, <laughs> <let's>, uh, <laughs> Miller. Miller. Anyway. <laughs> uh, all right, okay. you can leave it in. You can leave it in. The Virgins <laughs> aside, anyway, it's Big Bad Mama, which uh, some people have some affection for for whatever reason. Angie Dickinson, who is a uh, policewoman's in this thing. Tom Skerritt, who shows up in the next film he's involved with, and uh, Shatner himself. What passed for lighthearted fun in the 70s, this is effectively a more upbeat and goofy Bonnie and Clyde or a far less lesbian-leaning Thelma and Louise with policewoman Angie Dickinson and her two svelte daughters pulling bank jobs across the Midwest. Things start going sour for them when Angie falls for the inevitably irresistible 100% kosher charms of The Shat, who's some lousy gambler that falls in with them based on his banging of the MILF, and there's the similarly inevitable downbeat ending a la Peckinpah or Straw Dogs or Easy Rider or just about any other fucking fight society outside of road film you can name from that decade. It's fair but unspectacular viewing. So, what's your take on that one? Well, I can tell you why it became a cult status movie. And um, one thing, I, I don't think Shatner was too bad in this. You know, it's, it, no. it was, it's Steve Carver who did uh, a couple of things for Corman that are actually above average at the time. I don't know what ever happened to Steve Carver. Uh, I think one of the things was Capone, maybe mm-hmm. with Ben Gazzara and Susan Blakely, which is really good. But Shatner's not too bad in this. Yeah, it's you know it's a throwback picture. They were doing that a lot around this time period. We'll be talking about 73 to 74. Yeah, 74. I think this lasted all the way probably through 77. It, this was a thing. You know, Aloha, Bobby and Rose, the Jam thing. The Sting, Jam Michael Vincent's, what was that thing? Um, it was based on uh, the Me and Bobby McGee. What was that called? Oh, yeah. Well, they actually had a movie, Me and Bobby McGee, but uh, I don't you know, know. There was a lot of these things there, we were talking there, about. There were a lot of things like that during that time period. And uh, I think this all this really was a thing for a long time. I don't know if this was – you can't say it was influenced by Bonnie and Clyde because – that was 67, maybe, 66, and mm-hmm. this is, you know, definitely much later, but I just think it was a throwback thing that suddenly they, oh, you know what, probably regional, probably regional, the regional circuit, regional mm-hmm. theaters were probably doing quite well with these kind of movies, you know, like the Trump supporters of today, y'all, we're going <laughs> to make a miracle great again, I want to, 
I want to work in a coal mine so I can get lung fucking disease and die. You know, so, you know, shit like that. Uh, by the way, I want to say, people, this is a PSA I'm going to make in the middle of the show. There have been no coal mines open for about 30 years. I researched this because I was curious. Mm-hmm. Why? Because people get black fucking lung disease and yep. die. Yep. So, do you want to die? Don't listen to this man, but you're not going to listen to me because he's going to make America great again. So, anyway, I can... Cute Dirty Blackleg Miner by Steel Ice Band. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, no, I, I really want to say this is going to be the, non, the non-cool part of the show. Um, the show is very popular because Angie Dickinson was nude. Um, <laughs> yes, no, really, she was the, par- the popular star policewoman with Earl mm-hmm. Holloman, who was kind of kind of a piece of cardboard uh, I don't know him. I guess he was a nice guy but you know like he was you know not really anyway so Police Woman is a very popular show I, mm-hmm. I remember watching it when I was younger but she did this movie and like her breast was sagging even at that point but she did a lot yes. of <laughs> a lot of duty and it was in this movie so it became popular for that reason so uh, Captain Kirk got to bang her so uh, it was popular <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, the same year, Star Trek, <laughs> after Star Trek went off air in the late 60s, at the time it was not the phenomenon it became. That kind of arose on the college circuit in the 70s when people went back and saw these things, you know, syndication or whatever, and all of a sudden, a more activist, aware, you know, post-hippie era college crowd said, hey, look at all these, you know, social messages that are in this TV series. It's really proactive. It's really futurist in the positive sense, you know, in terms of looking for a better world, utopian, very progressive agenda, and they're like, wow, this is interesting. There aren't really any series like this, especially that consistently and openly. So it became... Do you think Bernie Sanders stole his whole platform from Star Trek? <laughs> Very possible. Very uh, possible. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that aside, so this became a thing on the college circuit, and people were going. I even remember my mother was going to a certain college in the area, you know, postgraduate uh, degree, I guess. And my father and I would go to pick her up at night on like a Saturday or whatever the hell because they had like these weird you know courses that ran around for people who work for a living and they actually had an amphitheater in the campus right around the place where she was at and so you had all this theatrical seating and a big giant screen and they would air at least at this time episodes of Star Trek I don't know if it was off TV or if they had their own screenings or what so we would just go up there to sit there and watch Star Trek on the big screen. And, you know, the, these, there were people there always kind of like, you know, um, I don't want to say hippie types, but, you know, the 70 types with beards and whatever the hell and the long hair and, Smoke you know, the pot. girls with the, yeah. the bell bobs, right, smoking pot or watching these things. And it became a thing. So actually, even before, because it took like a decade before right. Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, they said, let's do something with this. So what they did was... Filmation actually was probably getting this start. The Lou, oh, what the hell's his name? Lou Scheimer, who Scheimer. did a lot of live-action stuff that was really good in the 70s and stuff like ISIS and Shazam, and then later on started doing stuff like He-Man and She-Ra and all that mm-hmm. jazz in the 80s. So he was kind of a big name, but at the time this was just starting out. He says, you know what? Let's go and buy the license for this. Started doing Star Trek, and the coup about this was 
they got the original stars likenesses and they got the original people that, that were the cast of Star Trek to come do the voices so you had James Dewan you had what's his name George Takai you had right. Nichelle Nichols you had Nimoy you had Shatner they were all doing effectively Star Trek just as cartoon doing voiceover work so Star Trek the animated series it's actually pretty good people that know the series actually almost consider these episodes canon believe it or not as if they were part of the original <laughs> series obviously it's a little dumbed down because it is cartoons but not as much as you'd expect it's actually a good series it's out there on disc for those who are interested and you know definitely worth mentioning that that was part of how he got by during this period of uh squalor as he would put it anything you want to say about that before i go on to the next movie no actually i'm glad you mentioned it i was actually surprised i i, I did not forget about the uh, i did not think you were going to mention that yeah they're really quite good they're less uh, those are less her- how do I say less herky jerky yes than some of the other filmation <sighs> animated yeah it's almost uh, like they're more rotoscoped because they did some yeah. rotoscoping on Flash Gordon yeah. it's not quite there but yeah right right think you know think some of the Ralph Bakshi type stuff not quite there but and speaking of Bakshi I I, I have to <laughs> say I, I missed out on a lot of things because I just I don't know just for whatever reason I was too busy I was too stoned but I, I saw a fire and ice recently. And I, was I love that. I piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the crossover. What a piece of shit. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I fell asleep three, three times in 20 minutes. So. I can see that. <laughs> it, it's more for the visuals than it is for the wonderful story, which is kind of, you know, basically barbarians. Almost a, It's almost like a proto-quest for fire in a lot of ways, mixed with elements of Robert E. Howard. And I love Frazetta, and I, I love that whole theme, and I was just, I don't know what it was. Meanwhile, I love American Pop. Yeah, that's a good movie. Which, uh, but anyway, I digressed again, which I usually do. <laughs> but, but no, How about Lord but, of the Rings? Lord of the Rings was great. Lord of the Rings is phenomenal. Yes. We all hoped he would follow that up, but he, he hasn't. He never did. No. But anyway, yeah, look, for Filmation, it's not bad, so there's that. Yeah, and they actually did Power Records, who did a lot of superhero records in the 70s, which are hilarious, but some of them are actually pretty good, stacked cards and things like that. you got to keep your tongue in your cheek, but there's actually good stuff on there. Mm-hmm. And they did a lot of comic book adaptations of the period, and strange ones. You know, you got like a Tomb of Dracula thing, and which you would think would be more, quote, adult, and then you would have, so Star Trek was a big line, and then you had the more juvenile ones, like, who the hell, Captain Marvel and uh, yeah, Six Million Dollar Man and G.I. Joe, but most of the ones that were actually based on comic books were really good and like I said Star Trek had a, a fairly big line of records going through them with this and Neil Adams did a lot of the artwork those of you who are interested in those I remember that yeah yeah so next up Shatner goes to The Devil's Reign which is a Robert Foost uh, matter now interestingly enough Anton LaVey himself is credited as technical advisor and we know he was on set because he's on screen you can see him and so is his wife at the time diane who was i believe the mother of uh, not xena he she was he was the mother of the other girl uh the one that never really made anything of herself in the church if you will so so is levey's second in command isaac bonowitz yes who was the husband of a woman i dated for two years <laughs> yes, yes, we know that story. <laughs> well, some of us know the story. <laughs> some of us know that story. Uh... 
So, uh, anyway, this is one of dozens of horror films that came out of the post-hippie movement who had traveled across country almost as a mission to, quote, find America in themselves, only to encounter a decidedly hostile backwards environment in both the rural religious Midwest and the red state cronyism of the Deep South. From this came everything from Easy Rider, which we'll be discussing next time, to the more pointed role set Satanic Panic films like Enter the Devil, Race with the Devil, Brotherhood of Satan, Satan's Cheerleaders, and The Devil's Reign. One of a few films of the era to claim Anton LaVey as either a creative consultant or technical advisor, LaVey himself and his first wife Diane take bit parts in this one, as do several folks associated with the Church of Satan sometime during the 60s and 70s, like Eddie Albert and Keenan Wynn. Can't speak to the others, though Borgnine is certainly at his most sinister here. Also, Interesting, that is, yeah, right? This is also John Travolta's first walk-on role with non-speaking cameos, one of the Satanists. And there's a really, like, incubus, there's a weird atmosphere at play throughout that just can't be tied to the spare Western-style sets and desert location, or even the quirky, almost non-sequential performances by the actor, which leave much of the film's events seeming random, even circular and outside time, which is saying something right there. Honestly, is there even a proper plot? You could say the whole reincarnation angle with Shatner and Ida Lupino is the centerpiece, but what the hell's the story with Tom Skerritt and his girlfriend who's part of some parapsychological experiments with Eddie Albert? Is it really just a swap-out protagonist when Shatner gets captured? The whole thing just feels kind of random and disjointed, at least on a certain level. It's a quirky film and a unique one. Even among the rural satanic so popular throughout the decade, it's safe to say that few, if any, films feel quite like this one does. I, I agree with you. I, I saw this in the theater when it first came out, and catching up with it again recently, it's, you know, I have to say, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I say nearly everybody who did a commentary on this and did theses and did Articles are fucking wrong because I view it as this is almost like somebody's weird home movie. And you touched upon something there with your introduction to this film. It's quite possible this is like, were all these guys involved in some like cabalistic thing and they just wanted to make a mockery, a joke, and just see how the commercial going public would react? Because there's something very unusual about this movie. I mean, aside from the gloopy special effects, yeah, which which are there, <laughs> just kind of stupid. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which are kind of for a fact. And there, there's a very, for what it is, some of these people are really wholeheartedly into these roles. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, it's what it is. But why are these people so? Really into this, yeah. Yeah, you would think they would just be yeah. cashing a paycheck because they're so low budget and you know out of the mainstream, if you will. And get exactly. No. Yeah. So this is going to be the great, all oh, great mystery of life. This is going to be one of the great <laughs> mysteries where I don't think anybody can have a good take on this because anybody still around is not going to talk about it. And there's a great many people who are in this who are not with us anymore. So it's very interesting. It was very effective when I saw this theatrically. It's still very effective. It's not the shit show you think it is. Uh, no. It's almost an indescribable movie. Is it horrific in the case of, if we're going to compare it to like something like Carpenter's Halloween or our Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw. No, it's not horrific in any way or manner, but there is definitely an easiness, a 
a darkness about this mm-hmm. film, and and it's I've probably yet to pinpoint it. But when I said earlier, I think everybody was wrong because I think people are reviewing this film, commenting on this film from the standpoint of a. I've seen 300 Val Luton movies, and this is a piece of shit, or this is like not a great movie. No, I think you really have to look at this film from when it was done, who's in it, who worked on it, mm-hmm. and then view it as an experience, and then you start taking in all these questions. There's a lot of questions for this movie are never answered. Yes. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, it's not um, canon, shall we say, but there's enough things in there that are like, mm, well, yeah, and uh, this could be leading to or pointing to X, Y, or Z, and yet it's not, and there's like some fakes thrown in which, for good measure, kind of like uh, Crowley did in Magic and Theory and Practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> you know? okay. Uh, so those, those who know what I'm saying know what I'm saying. But, you know, nonetheless, it's an interesting mix of these people are serious and they're trying to say something and this is just complete bullshit and of course you know of course it's a low budget flick and there's that ridiculous gloopy effects section that honestly could have been completely excised without anybody being sad in the least I wasn't even too hot on the flashback sequence but I see why it was in there you know with the uh, what do you want to call it the, let's, let's put it to the mainstream the Arthur Miller crucible sort of sequence there in right, sepia right, down right. there's a reason it's there but I was like yeah you could have dropped that but otherwise, for what it is, it's actually a rather, I hate to say good film, but it certainly is an effective film. Strangely effective in a way that's very hard to pinpoint. So, next up, he does uh, another one that's actually pretty damn good, The Kingdom of the Spiders. Yeah. Which was directed by John Bud Cardos, who did things like The Dark. He's, okay... The Shat's in full-on Kirk mode, an urban cowboy about three years too early, putting the slick moves on no less than two women at once, a single mother and a new Dr. S in town. He's, quote, Rack Hansen, a cowboy-come-veterinarian for a small Arizona town who calls in the latter conquest of an entomologist when the usual 70s echo horror begins, animals smarter than man, taking back the planet for all our poisoning of the earth, air, and seas with chemical and radioactive runoff and screwing up the climate. One of the stronger of these sort of films, and certainly less pointedly camped than Bill Rabane's giant spider invasion, which we also had a amusing chat about on Third Hour a few years back. Apparently some cast members on that set were too drunk to walk on a daily basis, much less deliver their lines. It's well shot with some nice moments of cinematography, and the tenor is generally quite serious, if not grim. Even when stoic types like Western veteran Woody Strode have to shriek like little girls and crash their vehicles, or best of all, a poison-loaded crop duster which lands right in the middle of town over a few docile-looking spiders on their pants. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, spiders on my pants! Crap! But make no mistake, any spiders or plot take a decided backseat to Shatner on the make, leaving girls in tears not long after dropping some line about coming back to milk the cow, literally, and make an icy all-business feminist professora melty enough to drop sexually loaded one-liners and let him pick her up and toss her in a car like a 50s ingenue in a party dress. Certainly not one of his best performances, but probably the most entertaining of the films we're discussing today all around. I, I liked it. I, th- I think it's, you know, the title aside, Kingdom of the Spiders, it definitely is one of William Shatner's better performances, or has one of William Shatner's better performances. And it's for that, before that cheesy company, The Asylum, did like so many DVD ripoffs uh, or sci-fi channel ripoffs of other things. It's a pretty good echo thriller, horror film. I liked it. I yeah. thought he's decent in it, yeah. 
it's probably if you're gonna look at like, oh yeah, here's Shatner being cool, quote unquote. This is the one to go for. It's uh, one of them. It's one. Yeah. So then he does Star Trek the Motion Picture, which we hinted at earlier, and not long after that, I mean, basically the next year, he's out again in uh, the kidnapping of the president. Mm. Elizabeth Shepard from Tomb of Ligia and Damien Omen Two shows up in this one, which is interesting. And I had to keep this one just because it was hilarious. You might know who they are. Music by Nash the Slash. I have no idea who the hell that is. At this point, the Shad is starting to put on the fat in this political thriller about the hijacking that serves as a sort of dry run for the remainder of his career, from T.J. Hooker to his later Admiral Kirk movie roles, all busting out of his suit irritation and irascibility. There were any number of films similar to this during the latter part of the decade. 1977's Black Sunday and the prior year's two-minute warning spring immediately to mind, as does Carlos the Terrorist from Rene Cardona Jr. While less of a terrorist-slash-disaster film than those three, it still involves a terrorist revolutionary group from Central or South America trying to get whatever they're looking for as trade-off for hostages. This time they went right to the top and grabbed the head honcho, Hal Holbrook, who's an even worse choice for the top seat than Alan Alda was in Canadian Bacon, or hell, even John Ritter in Americathon. Of course, a big fucking potato would have been better and less destructive to our nation as a whole than Donald fucking Trump. Shatner stands around a lot, stares at monitors, grits his teeth, barks out commands into a walkie-talkie, and gets to run around like Columbo in a 42nd Street special of a trench coat. You have to expect him to hit the deuce mid-film or for some obsessive viewer to spot some cum stains on it. Even so, it's the same thing he does in the Star Trek films. A lot of standing around doing nothing while over-emoting intensely and angrily at co-workers who actually do things. Passable for the type, but nothing great. And Shatner's not in it for enough of the running time to justify its existence. Well, I, I mean, you wonder why it was released by Crown International Pictures, you know, yeah. 1980, when when the, you know, Ava Gardner's in this, another one who, like, banged everybody yes. in Hollywood, and Ben Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. You know, Hal Holbrook, uh, which was mentioned. Maury Chaikin, you know, another theatrical dude. Who was one of the Nero Wolves? Yes, it was one of the Nero Wolves. It's not as bad. I, I, it's okay. It's not horrible. It's not great. Nash Slash comes to mind. I don't know why. <laughs> I probably saw them at some point. God knows. I don't think. I don't think Shatner's fatness. I think he's thin. no. He's just starting to put on weight. He's, he's starting, starting to, bust to put out on weight. But 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 he also, you know, he he, did, he turned down when he had to. I could say that. I mean. He's, preponderance for getting a little thick in the middle, but, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think he's gotten worse toupees, too. Well, yeah. Everybody's bald. So, <laughs> no, but I mean, before you could kind of hide it, and then some of his later ones aren't as bad as once he starts wearing around this period, like in this film. Oh, oh okay, yeah. If we're, if we're going to say Shatner toupees around this period, not great. Okay. <laughs> I mean, God, I mean, people shave their head voluntarily nowadays. I'm not talking about that. I just did yesterday. <laughs> I did. I shaved my head yesterday. You know what? Nobody noticed. It was fucked up. <laughs> so anything else you want to say about this one? Or are you done? No, it's true. No. I did. <laughs> I did. I shaved my head yesterday. I was hanging out with my friend. He didn't say anything. I saw somebody tell you. He didn't say anything. Like, well, anyway. <laughs> but if I wore a William Shatner wig, it would be noticed. So keep oh, yes. that in mind. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I have nothing else to say. This is going to go down one of our historically best shows. <laughs> uh, so, wow. Uh, so, next up, 
Visiting Hours, the only slasher film he was uh, directly involved in. One of the more annoying of both slashers, and more specifically hospital horrors, I discussed this one alongside many others during our April Fool's Slasherama with the SOB hard director Tim Ritter a few years back, mm-hmm. where I believe I came to the same assessment. More one of those crap lifetime woman in peril from evil misogynist TV movie jobs than an actual slasher. Seriously, they cast one of the most annoying women on earth, Lee Grant, as a shrewish feminist crusader of a newswoman whose sheer obnoxiousness causes serial killer Michael Ironside to come after her. Seriously, this is the plot. He has some issue where his mother messed up his father's face or something, so now he goes after pushy feminist types, and she's that much of a bitch that he sees her on TV and he gets pissed off and decides to go kill her. That's the entire plot, where you really don't want either of them to escape alive, really. Uh, Shatner's her overly understanding TV news desk boss slash producer, who drops by to visit her a few times in hospital, and later when she's being stalked by the same guy at home. Not a lot of screen time, and this is definitely fat chat rather than the smarmy ladies man of a few years prior. Let's just sum this one up by saying at this point the 70s are over and only bad mainstream corporate run cinema and extra pounds await. Not just Shatner, pretty much everyone. So go ahead, what's your take? Uh, yeah, Michael Ironside wouldn't get notoriety for about, um, wow, maybe another 10 years for a couple of movies. But yeah, it's funny. I saw this Probably VHS when I first hit VHS. I know I know this was theatrical when I had the opportunity to see it, but I just never went. I sort of tape, and I was just like, ah, uh, it's just yeah, it's like as you described, you know, it's you know, psycho guy running out. Know, it's, it's very TV-ish, and yeah, a lot of a lot of Canadian film productions from this time period were kind of very similar, and actually lasted for almost for ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, where a lot of other films were looking very TV-ish, very TV production values. It's not a central shot. That's all I can say. Yeah. And I'll also say, you mentioned it came out in VHS. I also saw it that way. I actually uh, remember when it was in theatrical because mm. the ads for it, the trailer, and the um, poster were actually quite memorable. Yes. If you look at it, I was like, wow, this looks great. I want to see this. And then it's like, oh, it's like a Lifetime movie, which didn't exist yet, by the way. Lifetime movies wouldn't come about for maybe another decade. But that's very much what it is. So uh, right. next he does Wrath of Khan, of course, uh, a year afterwards. Airplane 2, he showed up in this Commander Buck Murdoch. And then in the same year, he starts doing T.J. Hooker, which runs for about four years with Heather Locklear. Definitely brings him some success. I remember, amusingly, that my Italian grandmother really loved him in this. She actually thought he was hot shit in T.J. Hooker. And we all kind of laughed, like, well, that's not really the best Shatner to be, be hot for. Because, you know, at this point, he's kind of busting out and wearing bad rugs. But nonetheless, uh, you know, he does definitely still have appeal, at least to women of a certain age. He, yeah, no, he had appeal. And he, he could still have some agility uh, in, in moments. Oh, he ran a lot in that, yeah. He, he, you know, it's funny, for, for a bovine guy, you know, <laughs> he, 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 you know, like Tony Anthony, when we did our Tony Anthony show in the yes. Treasure of the Four Crowns, he was kind of thick mm-hmm. later in his career. But Shatner, you know, and T.J. Hooker, you know, like, you know anybody else could fucking slide across a car like that? No. It's true. <laughs> we can't do it, so... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I haven't tried, but yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, you know, he, you know, and 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 it was a fun show. James Darren, who we all but forgotten about. Time Tunnel, mm-hmm. you know, you know, yep. uh, uh, Heather, Heather still invisible, Locklear. You know, mm-hmm. she was on it. And you're like, who's that? Well, I don't care. 
pretty but much no, true. you know what? It's it's not a great show, but for <laughs> yeah, he's doing a Star Trek revival, and yet he managed to pull a couple of years out of this. So this was definitely it lasted longer than other things, which didn't. So I, I give him a lot of credit for that. And uh, I think, if I recall, the last season of that, he wanted to get out, and they wanted to. Was it Adrian Zemed? Yes, Adrian yes. Zemed, who who maybe replaced James Darren. Adrian Zemed was supposed to take over, and then it was like, who the fuck is that? So it's just like after a while, it just got canceled. But Adrian Zemed, the solid goalpost. <laughs> was that who he was? Or yeah, was Adrian Zemed, Marilyn McCoo. Yep, yeah. <laughs> Those of you who remember that cheesy show with all the disco dancers. If you remember SCTV, Andrea Martin did a great impression of a solid gold dancer. That that was the only reason you watched the show back when. It was like a, it was supposed to be a top forty kind of thing, but it was in the days of disco and new wave, and they really leaned disco. Yeah, it was. You watched it for the solid gold dancers doing their interpretive dance to about ten seconds worth of each top forty song, ah, ah, <laughs> which were overly, overly sexual. I mean, in a comedy sort of way, like. You remember that thing? You can still find it on YouTube. It was some kind of exercise thing they used to have on HBO all the time. And that's all it was, was uh, lurid, leering shots of these gorgeous girls doing exercises in their leotards. But they would be doing stuff like, you know, basically humping the floor and flinging their legs open and getting a crotch shot and bending over in front of you so you could look down their blouse. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You ever see that, show? Aren't they all like that? <laughs> no, no, it was something they used to show all the time uh, between movies on HBO late did night. You, did you ever see the Looking Good with Laura Gemser exercise video? Yes, yes. Oh my God, there you go, perfect example. Exactly, same idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so he in the middle of this uh, hooker thing, he does. <laughs> that's pretty slip too. <laughs> Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which was the one where he was supposed to be dead, and they found a little planet and all that jazz. That was a weird uh, one. That was a weird. Yeah, one. I wasn't too fond of that one. I was kind of like, yeah. I stuck around to see four, and that was the end of it. Miss Congeniality, he does in two thousand, and then but, comes but back wait, to the sequel. Wait, let me interrupt you though. You 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 skipped Shatner's directorial debut, Star Trek Five. Star Trek Five. Yes, I had which, never seen which, it. Yeah, which you got a lot of shit for. Uh, which is contains some good classic Star Trek moments, if you're going to think about the show, the TV show. Uh, I think, now, please don't crucify me, I think Paramount didn't like what he did, and he eviscerated the cut, so we never actually got to see what he shot. So, I don't think it's as bad as people say. Now, Six, I said earlier, when the show first started, I really like Six a lot. So for Star Trek canon people, I really, I really still like Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. Please stay away from Generations, where they killed all fucking Captain Kirk. But, <laughs> but that's another story. Oh yeah, and in between there, if you're gonna do that, he also did Loaded Weapon, which is one of those stupid. Uh, I don't know if it was Zucker Brothers, but it was making fun of the Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, it was making it was making fun of the Zucker. Was it the Zucker Brothers? I'm not sure. Yeah. And he also did that stupid free enterprise no, thing. Which no, was, it was Gene Quintano, who who did the Tony Anthony movies. Really? Yeah, yeah. Of all people. 
But yeah, that stupid free enterprise thing, which was these two geeks at a convention, and they keep harassing Shatner. Awful. Yeah. I got suckered into seeing that when that came out. And then, like I said, Mission Geniality in 2000, and it came back for the sequel, Mission Geniality 2, Armed and Fabulous, which was not half as good as the original. Those of you who like Sandra Bullock uh, romantic comedies and such, uh, it actually was kind of amusing for one of those. And then later on, he's just doing very similar roles. I mean, he popped up in Dodgeball, which I think was one of those Will Ferrell movies. I don't even know what else. I mean, obviously he's still got this second career going on doing that. Was it Shatner Speaks or whatever it is? Shatner's World. Voiceovers. Boy, voiceovers. The commercials. A lot of video games and uh, oh, Priceline. Apparently, still doing that. Although I'm, he I'm not sure if he is. He had that long run with the Tech War stuff, which she probably just had ghost written for him. But nonetheless, yeah, he showed he, up on a TV series. Mm-hmm. He wrote several books, and he did, as I said earlier, several, several albums. And, like, you know, I mentioned has been, uh, there's quite a few of them out there. He did one, gosh, it's not too long ago, where he did, which I don't recommend, he did the Iron Man the Sabbath version. And, and, <laughs> Is well, it the one where he did Major Tom and all that jazz? Yeah, that one's not yeah. a good one. But I think sometimes you have to connect with something. If you're not connecting with what you're doing, it's not going to work. Exactly. And, and you know, it's just no affront to William Shatner. I, as I said earlier, I think he's really smart when it comes to stuff. I think he knows what he's doing. And I think people who work with him know what he's really doing. But it doesn't always work. You know, and, and, and that album, CD, vinyl, digital download, my God, it's getting so difficult nowadays to describe things. Whatever you want to call it. That, that one just did not work. And, and But, you know... He started out saying he's 87. Yep. You know what? He just did. Uh, he, he just did a speaking tour. He just he was on Broadway or off Broadway recently. He did you know minimal run. Guy's still out there. And one thing we could say, there will never be another William Shatner because no, not even close. Yeah, not even close because he came out in a time he was one of these guys. You know, okay, the only person, only person. Who I think there are two other guys actually, two other guys, and they're vastly, vastly different. But you could say have that kind of 3D, larger than life is Walken, Chris Walken, and maybe Pacino. But it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same. But because they don't have the camp appeal. You know, they on don't one have hand, the you can love appeal. him, and on the other hand, you can laugh at him. It depends how you take Shatner. Walken maybe a little bit. Walken maybe a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Because, well, Walken probably more so akin to Shatner, because Walken also has adopted that bit of sing, speak, start, Mm -hmm. stop, you over there. (laughs) I said, you over there. You know, where where Shatner would go, you, over there, you. You know, it's like very, very kid. Well, Al would scream, but, (laughs) (laughs) yo, you know, so. Well, Pacino is always going to have a dear place in my heart just for doing Cruising, which is one of my favorite cheesy movies ever. Well, I, mean, I just love that fucking well, film. No, no, don't get me wrong. Please, everyone, I'm not knocking any of these guys. I love all three. Oh, no, I love... Thanks. And I, we should make that clear. Yeah. I love William Shatner. Don't yeah. get the wrong idea because we, we knock him. We love William Shatner, and this is not a knock-bill show. I grew up loving this guy, and then I started laughing at how like cheesy his acting was, just like everybody else. But you know, he does do credible performances yeah. as well as great. you know having his silly li- delivery that he does. Like, I have great respect for Bill. I have great respect for William Shatner. But no, what I what I was trying to say, I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I just said. There's this 
to me, there's only two people, unless there's others out there. Don't say John Lovitz, please. Oh, God. Only two <laughs> that was a joke. There's only two people out there that I think do that kind of odd delivery and get away with it. Yeah, yeah. it's very, very interesting. Case in point, I was, I don't know how this happened. You might have saw I posted about this a couple of weeks ago. I just missed Michael Mann's heat. I've seen everything else he did. And I finally caught up with it. And I said, wow, this is so great, a movie. But it really drew me in to Al's delivery, which I've seen Al Pacino's delivery, which I've seen so, so many times over the years in different movies. And I was like, wow, because you put Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in the same scene, and you got these two different guys who work two completely different ways. And it was just like bugging me out. It's very interesting. But, yeah, Chris Walken, who can dance like no one, and we all know this, who's also become a bit of a pop icon over the years, cowbells aside. Um, <laughs> so our, our William Shatner show is devoted to William Shatner because we respect him, and there's no, there will be no other William Shatner for sure. And all respect to Mr. Shatner. <laughs> Yes, I mean, hopefully by the time this runs, maybe we can put up a little clip of the Shatner speaking at the outset. Yeah, I mean, if we can find something that would really let people know what we're really... <laughs> or I could just cut the end off of, Mr. Tabarima! <laughs> you could add that in, although it might freak people out, and then we wouldn't want people to turn off the show before it starts. <laughs> Okay, please, yeah. please uh, tune in with us next show, which will be about... Yes, yeah, so uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on William Shatner. Next week, one of New York's own, scion of an acting dynasty that includes his famed father, controversial sister, and indie film regular daughter, Peter Fonda walked a very different path from the man who raised him, in short order becoming the figurehead of a generation. From an oddball pair of Roger Corman quickies that barely seemed to grasp the counterculture they centered on and were ostensibly marketed towards, Peter Fonda took on the role of a lifetime in a film that was just as loose wild and freely improvised as the spontaneous youth productions of the era and yet more profound and incisive than any dozen deliberately crafted quote art house and message films following up with similarly loaded and relevant films that still adhere to and fall under the umbrella of cult and genre film of the era like Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Last Movie and even Future World, Fonda would make a sideline in both rural action films and low-key dramas throughout the 70s appearing in cultier fare like Spasms and Certain Fury in the 80s and the art house cinema of the early 90s before one last gasp is old Nick himself and the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider. So join us as we talk to the man who positively embodied the 60s and 70s, the one and only Peter Fonda only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So, uh, anything else you want to wrap up with? Yeah, yeah. We thank you all for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And please join us next time for Peter Fonda. And it's going to get even better. So uh, if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician who'd like to join us in air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Weirdscenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the Big Papa Online Network, which technically really doesn't exist anymore. It's just our show. <laughs> and Burger uh, King. Burger King is our producer. Right. <laughs> Burger because King. Uh, Burger King's... Burger King sells beer now, so they're they're. <laughs> well, when they start getting Menage a Trois red wine, then we can say it's produced by them as well. <laughs> Is that a real wine? Yeah, that's what I'm drinking. 
Menage I drink that in Middle Sister. Yep, Menage a Trois. Does that and I actually, like make you want to do it? Well, of course. Oh, <laughs> I don't think my okay. wife would go for it, but... See no more, see no more. You know, have, have you ever heard the Isaac Hayes song, Menage a Trois? Like, <laughs> seeing that and seeing this wine out there, I had to pick it up. It was based on the name. Good? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, for a cheap wine, you know, it's... It gets the job done. It's tasty. It doesn't give you a headache. There you go. Does Mrs. like it? Uh, no, she does not drink wine. Well, She's more of a straight edge. That defeats the purpose of the <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> join us next week. Uh, please. Okay. See you next time. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. 
Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Poppin' Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the Katie, the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Will your child be ready for kindergarten at Chesterbrook Academy Preschool? The answer is yes. Our curriculum offers the perfect balance of learning and play. Our teachers personalize that experience for each child through engaging activities that develop the skills they need to be ready for what comes next. Attend a Chesterbrook Academy open house on Saturday, January 26th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. To find a preschool near you, click the banner or visit chesterbrookacademy.com. That's chesterbrookacademy.com. Com.